Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and inviting you to listen to our latest podcast, number 916, with author Douglas Raggio about his new book entitled, So You Wanna Start a Food or Beverage Business? This podcast, number 916, is brought to you by Stephen Campbell, author of a book entitled, Making Your Mind Magnificent, Use the New Brain Science to Transform Your Life in Negative Thinking, Improve Focus, and clarity, and be happier. If you want to know more about Stephen Campbell and his book, please visit his website at www.stephencampbell.com. That's www.stevencampbell.com. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to my engaging interview with Douglas Raggio about his new book entitled, So You Want to Start a Food or Beverage Business. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I have a good friend, Doug Raggio, and Doug and I used to share office space together. And he's got a new book out. So you wanna, okay, start a food or beverage business. And I'll tell you, in California, uh, especially where we have most of our listeners, believe me, it's a big deal. And right now the expo is going on, isn't it? Up in Anaheim, is it? Last week. Last week it happened. Yeah. So Doug was there. Were you giving out a lot of books? Or no, selling we a lot talking, of books? Catching up, catching okay. up with people. Okay. Well, this book um, we both know Matt Holt, and this is a great book. He did a wonderful job the way you guys laid this out. So thanks for that. And I'm going to let my listeners know something about you. Uh, He's experienced in nearly every aspect of the $170 billion specialty food industry. I'm not certain most listeners know how big it is. He's founded, he's founded as the founder of Pass the Honey and also founded the slow cooking meal company, Stews and Such, cultivating a network of manufacturers, vendors, distributors, co-packers, and retailers in and around the packing food space. Concurrently, he was the founder and managing director of early stage venture capital, Gastronome Ventures, and one of the first fully dedicated VCs in the healthier for you food and beverage industry. He's also the founder of a private equity fund called Bias and Blind Spots, which I always love that name. I thought it was great. I also focused on emerging healthy food and beverage branding companies with transitions currently totaling or transactions uh, more than 150 million. Um, he's a sought after advisor uh, in this field and obviously. Uh, 12,000 investment opportunities that he's reviewed and or uh, looked at or put together. So this is the book. We're going to put a link to it. We'll also have a link to the website. Now, we were just goofing with that. So it's www.soyouwannabook.com. That's where you can learn more about Doug. Uh, you can learn more about the book and you can learn more about the author, his services, what he does and so on. So Doug, uh, fascinating book for any entrepreneur, but in particular, you know, um, when people get into the food business, it can be dicey. And then, and especially this co-packing thing that you're talking about. And you wrote a book to assist the startup food business entrepreneurs navigate from beginning to end 
how to launch a new food product or beverage or whatever it might be. Uh, why did you see a need for a book like this? And what do you want the readers or the listeners right now to kind of take away from reading this book or listening to this podcast? So the takeaways, it's important to delineate that this book is not a how I did it. It is not a prescriptive guide on this is how you launch a food company. I personally do not believe there's any one way to launch a food company. What many founders seem to forget is that if you have a clearly defined end game, that's really where you should start and you can build backwards from there. So the format of the book is a pick your path. So you, you, there's four archetypes of characters kind of is the standard four types that I saw after looking at 12,000 deals and you read about the character and then you choose, you choose their path and you read a little bit in the story. You just stop. There's actually a stopping point and it asks you to choose a direction to pick your path further. And there is where critical thinking comes in. It's the, what should I do with what I want, where I want to go? And nine times out of 10 businesses end in failure, it seems. And so a lot of these pathways end in failure or running out of money or expired goods or no, no product market fit. So the intention of the book is to give aspirational food founders an idea of some of the decisions they're going to make. And it's not about me. It's not about past the honey. It's not about my venture fund or the private equity fund. It's actually showcasing other food founders with household brands and the decisions they made that were either had unintended consequences, good or bad. So that's really the intention of the book is to provide some critical thinking, some in-game planning and going in with your eyes wide open. The barriers of entry to food are perceivably low. It's a very complex industry. Um, just because you have a good brownie that your friends say you should sell does not mean it makes a good business. So, Yeah, no, the- it, it's so true. I've seen so many people attempt and I have gone to the uh, Natural Products West Expo so many times. And each year you go, you see thousands of vendors and new ones, you know, the emerging people that are coming up and you'll go back the next year and they're not there. Or if they oh, yeah. did make it to the next year, they've had to get funding, uh, rounds of funding to, to get there. And it is a super competitive industry. I mean, you know, all you got to do is go to the grocery store and look on the shelves. And obviously there isn't enough room there. Other than that, you've got to go someplace else to buy the product direct off the internet, right? So it's like, okay, am I going it's to also Amazon? also very costly. Yeah. Am I going to Amazon? Am I going to run my own website? Am I going to distribute this stuff on my own? And so on. And you are the founder of Pass the Honey. And I really think that's a, a great uh, a product. I've actually bought it and consumed it. And it's an organic honeycomb business. Prior to that, you vetted 12,000. It's actually, I'm going to stop you. It's regenerative. Okay, regenerative. There are, no, or, there are no organic standards in honey. It is a misnomer. How well, can you certify something's organic if bees fly six miles. So, well, so you're trying, you, you've got a lot of environmental uh, elements associated with saving the bees and what the way you're oh, yeah. doing this. And I think that that's a big story for you. I've seen you dressed up in the bee outfit and the costume and all that stuff. But prior to this, you vetted 12,000, as you mentioned, investment opportunities and founded gas, uh, gastro ventures and bias, bias and blind spots. What are some of the biases and blind spots that you see new venture entrepreneurs attempt to navigate? And how do you help them 
these entrepreneurs build a roadmap to have a higher probability of success because there's so many variables in this from co-packing to marketing to distribution to sales to to you know getting awareness that the product's there i mean when you look at all of it it's pretty massive and then to have the ability to stick it out and stay there how would you tell somebody brand new is listening to me and says i got the greatest brownie and I want to make this brownie and get it out. Um, what would you say? The two key things in consumer packaged goods, the CPG space, and for food in particular, it's margin. It's how much profit you're making per sale. And then it's consumption. And it's how fast are people consuming it. So if you can nail those two, that is what makes a, a strong business. If you're having to spend $100 to get somebody to consume $3 or $4 or $30, you're upside down. And that is where a lot of founders, a good brownie recipe that you're buying ingredients from a Whole Foods or other natural retailers, you, know, you have to charge you know, 10 times more than your competitors on the shelf. So the bias or the blind spot there is that what's my pricing? Well, you know, what's my cost of goods? Um, when you start getting into into retail, there's distributors involved and brokers involved, and they all have their hand in the you know, in your pocket. So that's the the blind spots that a lot of founders don't think of is the multi tier distribution channel, the delays to get into retail, the product resets. Um, the bias is that if your competitor raises money, you have to raise money, and that's not truly the case because you made a comment earlier around this year was the year of alkaline water at Expo. The year before it was CBD. The year before that was popcorn. The year before that was plant-based jerky. It seems to run in phases where all of a sudden a certain product category gets super, you know, weighted with a lot of competitors. And then they attrition and you get like four or five that really make it out the other end. So just because your competitor is raising money does not mean you need to raise money. That is a binary outcome typically. So that's a lot of the, the well, questions. I think, I think margin and sell-through is it's super advice, you know. I, I I know you know this because you keep your ear down and listen, uh, but the guy who started Enemens was 93 and he just passed away. And they said in the news story, you know, if you look at Enemens, it's been on the shelves for, yeah, for God her. only knows how long it's been on the shelves. And he's had great shelf space and probably great sell through and great margins and whatever. But the, they asked his son, he said his dad never ate any of his own products. <laughs> oh, wow. I thought that was pretty yeah, interesting. I think I'd heard that before about that particular yeah, founder. Yeah. It, a lot it, of founders. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, you didn't eat your own stuff that you were making. So it was, it was pretty, pretty interesting. You state that in the consumer packaged goods world, you found that the founder, they fall into one of four basic categories of archetypes. And throughout the book, you tell real life stories about entrepreneurs going into the consumer products goods business. Can you lead us through one of your stories so that the readers better understand the decision-making process of going into CPG? And I was thinking of the mat mattress uh, one. I mean, quite a success story, San Diegan guy, right? I looked him up on the internet and I could see his protein bar. I don't, and, I don't know. I don't know if protein bar was San Diego based. He's San Diego. He's in San Diego. It says he is on his website. Well, oh. whatever. That's all I'm saying. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, 
but lead us through one of those because you know you you had everybody from coming from a farmer's market trying to do gluten free um which was um the Gallet down at Union Cowork all the way through all kinds of other examples but i think it'll give the reader an idea of what the how the book could help them so matt's story is one of sacrifice the things you have to give up he was a young guy you know didn't have a family um, a lot of his friends were getting investment banking jobs or other professional jobs. And he was the one that was grinding it out, starting this, this protein bar, which is a retail location. And you know, he started with one product and then he put a location in a, in a office complex. And that really kind of changed his focus into that. Um, it grew, it, things seem to hit a wall where you don't think you're going to get out of. And then they kick up because you, you know, are a bit in a survival mode. You start to get real creative real quick. And his story has a number of those situations. And he's been, he's a multi-time founder with multi-successes selling to private equity. But there is these, these moments of inflection where it's existential and you have to get, you either have to product shift or you have to, you know, marketing shift. And that's a pretty standard story that you hear from a lot of established founders is that we thought it was going to be this and end up being this. And when I mentioned earlier, it's these unintended consequences. It's, the moments you're in and that create this, this mind shift or business shift that unlocks the real value and allows you to move forward. And if you want to pick an archetype, the traditional failure I see is that a founder has a personal relationship to food, healed themselves or wanted a better food for themselves or their family member. Um, there was nothing on shelves. So they wanted to create it themselves. That's a pretty standard food founder. Uh, what about and they believe it's going to, what about set day? I know I just bought a bag of their chips, right? And it was about their yeah. son was gluten intolerant, the whole family, right? The whole set day family yeah. story. It was a sister, I think. But yeah. Sister. But my point is, is that when you look at set day and you go, wow, these chips are good. They're gluten free. They're nutritious. They're everything. But yet you, you hear the stories about what that family went through to get that to be a success. And it, it's crazy. It's crazy. That's, and that's what people forget is we, we as a society will look at the outliers and think, oh my gosh, like that's, that's the bar. And what we forget is, is it takes a long time to get there. It's these iconoclasts of the food space didn't happen in four to five years. It, but isn't it, well, isn't it frequently Doug, when you're in this space, because the giants of the world, they want to acquire you. And the whole reason you started it, they didn't, all these families didn't have an exit strategy. It wasn't like, well, I'm going to get sete and now I'm going to sell it to General Foods, right? It wasn't, that wasn't the story, but the offers get to be so monumental that a lot of these people do exit this and they end up aggregating. Yes. That is the misnomer. And that's where one of the pathways in the books talks about raising venture capital. It's that I'm going to go tackle an, a large incumbent. I'm going to go after Pepsi. I'm going to go after General Mills. I'm going to go after, you know, you name it. Uh, and you start taking venture capital money and venture capital money has a timeline. They need yeah. to be in and out of their deals pretty quick. It's usually five to eight years. Um, and it creates this pressure cooker, this like consistent need for growth. Now, there was a period for about a decade where it was grow at all costs. That narrative and that, that strategy is shifting a bit because we're seeing a lot of failures. So when you get on the hamster wheel and you are spending more than you're earning, 
but you have to keep growing, you're digging a bigger and bigger hole. So while these exits happen, these acquisitions by large conglomerates, they're not truly beneficial to the founders many times. It's on average, the founder owns about 11% of the company by the time they sell because mm. they've had to raise so much capital. And that's across all venture capital. Founder ownership is on average 11% after an exit. And it's usually after four to five rounds of, of capital raising. Now, that being said, they may own 11%, but the way that deals are structured, they may only get six to 7% of the actual transaction size. So you, you may sell for $100 million. You may own 11%, but you're only going to you know, receive $6 million. Then you take taxes out of that. And all of a sudden it's like, what did I just work five to six to eight years on? Yeah. Um, You're just now getting paid back for all your your energy and equity that you put into this thing. Most times you don't even get to cash that check, so to speak, because you have what's called an earn out. Then you have to work for the acquiring company for five years. Right. So it's all all that autonomy and that independence to create a better food, to reinvest in the supply chain, to make these systemic change in our, in our food system, they kind of go out the window when it gets acquired. Not all the time, but predominantly. And the companies don't perform. And then they get sold again by the, you know, the major acquirer. It's happened to a number of food brands just recently. Um, yeah. it's, it's sad. The original founders are buying back their companies for pennies on the dollar because their corporate acquis- you know, acquisition groups didn't take the brand where they thought they could. And a lot of times, if you're a General Mills and you're acquiring a $100 million brand, it's $100 million is a big number. Yeah. But to General Mills, it's small. Yep. So who's watching the $100 million baby over here when they have to move Cheerios, you know, which is their, you know, those are their, their major needle movers. Yeah, you know, so that's was... the kind of stuff that founders don't do. They get into this thinking, oh, I'm going to make a better brownie and, or I'm a better kombucha, but then they don't think of cost of goods. They don't think about distribution. They don't think about you know, margin for the retailers, for the distributor, um, the limited shelf space and having to pay a lot of times for the shelf space. It's really, really expensive, especially the more crowded your category is. Are the, are the margins, you know, I remember because I, I met him and then we had him on the podcast two or three times, the vegan athlete who started Vega. And yeah. then Vega sold to that... Um, mega milk company in golden Colorado or wherever the hell it was, you know, it is purportedly sold out for 500 million, right? That was the, what the deal was. I don't, but I do see him still at the shows, you know, it's like he still shows up. So he's still locked into the deal. Um, And my question for you around this is really, you know, those people grow those companies are the margins in powdered good drinks so much greater than anywhere else because of shelf life, because of the way they manufacture it, whatever. It seems to be that there's a lot of business in protein drinks, protein powders, uh, all that kind of stuff. What, what, what gives there? And this kind of off the wall question, but if anyone would know, you would. (laughs) Well, it's just a big category. There's a lot of search volume online and you could, it's like coffee. Yeah. You get, 0.01% 0.01% of the coffee market, and you're still a multi-million. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. There's Got a lot, of, you know, people are online looking for coffee. You can niche it out. Um, a lot of the difficulty we have with past the honey being a single serve honeycomb company, we call it snacking honey. There's no search volume for honeycomb. The average consumer doesn't even know honeycomb is in the store. Yeah. So we have, you know, we're creating a category of snacking honey with our single serve format of a commodity. And we have to educate everyone so that, you know, with, instead of going into 
kombuchas or powdered inner, you know, protein drinks, where there's an established set with established players with established benchmarks, we're having to forge our own path, which is an equally more, you know, brutal exercise. You know, there is no magic unlock in food. It's like, oh, I'm just going to put this website up and just. It's it's funny. Soon after you came out with Pass the Honey, you know, I go to Costco and shop for my normal some goods. We're vegan now, so not much. I go down the aisle on left hand side where the agave is and the honey is. I see they're selling honeycomb, Uh (laughs) and that's Ted Denard over at Savannah Bee Company. Oh, is it? Well, it was about great, great product. $36 $36 or something for this, whatever it is that they have on the shelf. But, you know, when the buyers at Costco put honeycomb on the shelf, you got to be thinking to yourself, this is a category that's going to take a rise because they're they're paying attention yeah. to the fact that it's there. I mean, you know, those buyers usually only buy what's going to be consumed. They they know they have a they are, pretty- they are, uh, they are a machine. But yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. So I think you're in a good category. Stick it out. <laughs> I'm not worried. <laughs> you know, you speak. But you, about- know, you, you, you mentioned earlier. You, I'd looked at twelve thousand deals. That's over yeah. about a decade plus. Yeah. Maybe it's arrogance. Maybe it's naivety. I figured after looking at that many food opportunities that I could see what worked and what didn't, and I would avoid a lot of the pitfalls. And no, I've been in this industry sixteen years now. And I am still experiencing a lot of the same problems as your first-time founders that are doing it right out of the gate. It's just a difficult industry. And it's difficult in the sense that there's so many players and there's so many delays, and then you have to make the product, pay for the product before you can sell it. It's not like the internet where you can you know, write some code, press publish, and it's instantly downloadable for X amount over and over and over and over again, infinitely. You know, there are supply ch- Right now, we're all experts on supply chain. Everything's getting more expensive to get product to the store. Um, So that's the kind of stuff that people don't think about. And I thought I could be smarter than your average bear. Well, I'd say you have more experience. And the most important point about experience and wisdom is somebody new coming into it doesn't think about those elephants and elements. And you speak about everything from hiring an expert to investing in marketing. What are the key elements in successfully navigating a consumer products good business? And what advice do you have for someone wanting to dive into the business like right now? You know, you look at, hey, we've just come through COVID. We got the war now. We've got all these factors that are influencing things. Um, I was told by a friend in Poland who's helping and I'm helping aid the people in Poland, myself helping with apartments and so on, that... um, that's a $43 trillion land grab for uh, Putin because it's the breadbasket. It's like us mm-hmm. saying the Midwest, wheat. it's the wheat, yeah. right? It, it's not only the wheat, it's the wheat, it's the oil, it's the industry, it's whatever. But there is a lot of food that's produced in Ukraine for the rest of Europe, huh. right? Yeah. So my question is, before somebody dives into this, what advice would you have for them when you looked at all these elements in the book? There were lots of elements that you discussed. And I think if you could just give them a broad brush of, hey, you're thinking about this. These are the things you really ought to think about. It goes back to margin and consumption. Those two. Can you, okay. make, can you make a profit and how fast can people consume it? Are okay. they willing to consume it? If you okay. have margin and consumption, you essentially have what they call product market fit. People are buying it and they're buying it in some frequency and you're making a profit. Those are the cornerstones to CPG. 
um, food. Is there a particular margin that they'd want to look for? Depends on the category. Lots yeah, but I mean, all all these categories over are over thirty eight. Okay. Okay. But if the the, the the more cluttered the category, the more marketing spend you got to allocate. If you're trying to launch an energy bar, there's all kinds of discounts and promotions and all that kind of stuff. We're launching Honeycomb in the produce department. It's just a different part of the store that has different economics with different expectations. So it is very like, know your category, know what your competitors are roughly at, and obviously try to beat them. Um, It's great advice. I mean, you know, look, somebody listening to this show saying, you know, what would I do? You're giving them great, th- those two things. I mean, it was worth the show just for that. Cause I a lot always of default to those. Yeah. If you can get margin, you can get consumption. Then you are in a, in a decently good start. Now so I, the, I did the some last part. What? Of your question. Yeah. The, the advice outside of just what needs to go right, which is margin consumption. The advice is if you're looking to make a quick buck, it's not in food. It is just, it is a long, long path. Long haul. Okay. Yeah. It's, there is no overnight success. Well, that leads me to this. I did a little research on the web before I came into this podcast and you, the statistics that I found uh, state that there's 30,000 new consumer products launched annually annually, and that 95% of them fail. 30,000, 95% fail. Um, why do so many fail and how do you help clients eliminate some of the risk of failure? Cause I mean, look, if you're going to, there's 30,000 out there, right? That's, that's a lot of new market not, and a lot of new packaging goods coming into the product, right? Coming into the pipeline. And uh, that show last week is a, just an exemplifies just the hundreds of people that are trying to do it. And the thousands of investors who've invested in those companies to get them to do it, that don't know whether or not that's going to pan out or not. So, so, the question so my the, question the, is, the how do you help, avoid failure? How, how do you help some of these people where they're not part of the 95%, they're part of the 5%? I'm going to be a broken record. It sounds the two things margin. The margin. Okay. Now the other, the how to avoid <laughs> failure is don't start. It okay. jovially as a couple friends of mine read the book and said, this thing's a dream crusher. And it's not a dream crusher. Like, again, if you don't have a good brownie, it doesn't mean it's a good business. So if you have to charge, if you have to, if it costs you $6 to make your amazing brownie and you have to charge $5 to sell it, you're losing a dollar. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean, that doesn't include when the distributors get involved, you could be negative. It could cost you $5, $6 to make it. You may have to sell it for $3.99. You could be losing seven dollars. You know, it depends. That's just that's but the if, part that but if they did want to stay the farmers market route and just make the yeah. circuits on local farmers yeah. markets and still totally keep doable. their margins low, right? Um, or keep their margins high and their expenses low, they could they could do that if they didn't want to like yeah. go to the big time with it, right? And that's where a lot of founders start and they want to ta- they want to take on General Mills, but they started a farmer's market. And to go from here to there is oh really, God. really long. So <laughs> it's just a, that goes back to what I initially said. It's about know what your end game is. Yeah. Do, you want a, do you want a business that gives you the ability to speak to your neighbors every week? Great. Farmer's market. Do you want a business that is known in your, in your community, your town, in your region? Great. Keep it to Southern California. Do you want a national brand? A little different. You want a global brand? Way different. 
You know, do you want to be a hundred million dollar company? Or you want to be a billion dollar company? All those have different paths. You know, the different ways to get there. It's just you don't want to have a lifestyle business and go build your own factory. Well, I remember. I remember not too long ago the human trafficking issue was an issue, and the little girl got national exposure, and she had lemonade, the lemonade drink. She was at a oh yeah, go, but she tied it to a social cause. Which then escalated the whole thing. And I, and I know you get this. You're, if anybody gets this, you get this. And I just had um, um, Goldstein on, the guy that owns Questas uh, Marketing, which is, or I should say, advertising agencies. His clients are Starbucks and all the major food guys and whatever. He's amazing. New chapter, you name it. Um, and he was a fascinating interview, but he said, you know, People today, the consumers today, want to make certain, many of them, they're making a difference, right? And so when you tie the story that she had, or you take the story of, in his case, uh, Doug, they used a story for Super 8. They wanted heads and beds, but they literally were doing a campaign with a guy with PTSD who had a hug nonprofit. He was riding around on a bicycle going to VA hospitals. So they went and videoed him. And the point of the story is this, just like Patagonia, Chenard puts a thing up and says, don't buy this jacket because you're going to put more pollution into the world, right? Mm -hmm. Or Super 8 talking about this guy's plight to help uh, people with PTSD get hugs so they could kind of cure themselves and get better and going around the world. That campaign that had no brand attached to it. The Super 8 name wasn't even on it. It was just at their channel. Put more heads in beds than they ever could have conceivably done plummeting people with emails. Speak with us, if you would, about the connection. And you're doing this with, you know, past the honey. That's really, that's who Doug is. That's, I get that. Um, how, how would you advise somebody today coming out with a new consumer product good and attaching it to something that's good so that people can get the press and literally move it to gets on fire? Tough question. I think what, 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 well, no, not tough, but what you're, I guess what you're getting at is it's this value driver from purpose. Yes. Like what is, so I would say, yes, you are correct. A certain section of the consumer is looking to vote with their wallet and buy brands and invest in brands and consume brands that are stewards of some purpose. It could be, you know, trafficking. It could be, in our case, it's pollinator research and habitat restoration. Um, it could be you pick, you pick the purpose. Um, however, that being said, when things like COVID come, there's not a run on honeycomb. There's a run on like Cheerios. There's a run on these like pantry staple items. So, there's still a long way to go in our, and I can only speak to my own business, but liquid honey is 70% fraudulent as a whole globally. So it's the third most fraudulent food on the planet. The $3 teddy bear is not honey. It's processed syrups and sugars. So here we come investing in our supply chain, investing in research and habitat restoration. We have a million acres, over a million acres in the U S uh, the cost of real honey is not 13 cents a serving. It's much higher. And we still, even though consumers may not be aware of fraudulent honey and the ones that are 
still are hesitant to you know, pay the true cost of what pollen produced, responsible sourcing, regenerative sourcing is in honey. So there's a lot of direction going that way, but it's still got its own headwinds. Consumer behavior is really hard to change. Well, I think you're, I think you're on the right track with Pass the Honey. I think that many of these where there's a cause greater than the honey, like saving the bees, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and doing what you're doing is important while the product is expensive and there is a barrier for people to cross over. I think when it's tied to a cause, it makes it so much easier to spend the extra money. Okay. Yeah. There's something else that I think should be noted for an early founder is when you bake in purpose, like we have, we are more a supply chain story than we are anything else. We are a story mm-hmm. of sourcing and regenerative agriculture, setting regenerative apiculture, beekeeping practices. When you have something that has that kind of depth to it, we're not, we're doing top down selling. So there are many retailers that want to be seen as supporting pollinators. Right. There's very little brands that are doing true work. So we bridge that gap. So we're able to go to sustainability leads at major grocery stores and work with them on larger programs. Instead of going door by door, buyer by buyer, kind of from the bottom up to sell our product in, because we have such a deep purpose and we've been at this for years, that we're able to go top down. And that's a different way to sell in your product. And it's much bigger accounts and they also take longer, right? Yeah. So that has been our our magic unlock is our true purpose is, you know, is us walking the walk, talking the talk. Um, well, you have a great story to tell Doug. And I, you know, I, 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 I just think it's great what you're doing and great that you came out with this book as well um, as, as kind of some place to help guide people are trying to get into this. Um, and it is, you know, as you said, it's, it's a business like in the book, you say, don't listen to the noise and there's plenty of noise and it can confuse entrepreneurs going into a consumer project business. I did a course that I taught called Never Mind the Noise. Um, what advice would you have for the listeners about learning how to focus and follow the correct steps to assure more success uh, on the launch of their product and especially around this noise toward the end of the book, you talked about it. It's like, hey, don't don't listen to the noise. Um, if you listen to all the noise, you probably wouldn't do half of the things that you do. <laughs> yeah, and you'd save time and money. And that's, I wake up most mornings and when things are stressful, it gets real myopic, but it's what has to go right. Like, what are the things that have to go right? In world and life, there are very few things that have to go right. The rest is just bonus. So for us, you know, there are certain things we have to open X number of doors in X period of time. Like our business is not an e-commerce business. There's no one looking online for honeycomb. Our business is a retail play in produce because of our commitment to regenerative agriculture and the roles that bees play in our, in our food supply, like that, getting that right, getting our placement in produce with large retailers, that is our focus. So when you have that laser focus on what has to go right. And then you put benchmarks around that. What does success look like there? For us, it's 1,500 doors. Like that's not a, that's not a, hard, a high bar. Um, we're in 100 now. So we just drive the team down that. You know, we, need a, we need to see 1,500 doors in produce through these distributors with these retail accounts. Now, 
The rest, if we get an opportunity to be featured on some TV show, sure, we can do it. As long as it doesn't suck up a ton of time. Um, but that's, it's that ability to say no, which is not a new statement. It's to what you say no to really helps guide you. I read that book, Essentialism, and it was just like. Greg McKinnon. Great. Yeah, like, yeah. Great book. And there's this great visual he has, which is a circle with a bunch of little lines with arrows. Yeah. And all the arrows are the same length. And if you stack them together, you go much further. If you, st- if you don't, you're just, just you're, you're diluting your energy. Yeah. And so yeah, no, it's that so is, that's the advice. It's know what has to go right on a regular basis and just drive towards that. Just remove and say no to more. But I, I also, with that being said, I think you have your metrics. You know what you have to do. You're very focused. Um, and I have a friend here locally that's working with Wes Jackson at the Land Institute on perennial farming, and that and that's in Salina, Kansas. And you know, I've done several interviews with some of the authors around this topic. But you know what? Most people don't really even understand, and it's hard to get the message out, is that at best we have 20 years left in the soils to grow the goods we're growing. Yet La-di-da, people just keep going on the way they're going on and farming the way they've been farming. We're seeing very, we're seeing some progress. But what you're doing too is another thing. That's that's what I'm saying is wake up world. Look what's happening. This is what's happening. And you cite many case studies in the book and you provide the reader with some insights about what it takes to make it successful. What is the one case study that stands out for you and was successful beyond the entrepreneur's expectations of the ones that you had in the book? If you were to use one. The one, the story that jumps out to me the most, that just it, it's illustrative of the, the pressure you get to not pursue something. So there's a founder in the book that has a well-known kombucha company called Health Aid Kombucha, like resounding success, you know, category leader, one of. Um, when she went down this path, her mother made an Excel chart of all the lost income that she was giving up by pursuing this silly dream. If your parents are putting together Excel charts to show you how bad your decision is and you still power through like that is, that's tough, man. That is like, I don't know. I luckily have parents that are, you know, her parents are supportive, but also they're also, you know, they want to see their daughter succeed. Well, they're realists. They're realists as well. You know, I think when you have a dream, sometimes you're, when you have a dream, sometimes you're not a realist. The Um, best ideas don't make sense when they start. Me right. selling cut honeycomb does not make sense. And now it's turned into this global supply chain impact organization. I never would have guessed. I naively thought it'd be really simple to find clean honeycomb. It's not because of right. all the fraud and honey. And then you start talking about poor beekeeping practices and agricultural spraying and bioaccumulation in the wax. It's all of a sudden we had to go set our own new standards. We had to forge our own relationships. We had to start becoming you know, a vertical enterprise from day one. Which so when are you doing expensive. a documentary to expose what's going on so the rest of the world really understands? <laughs> We're starting with vignettes. Okay. Um, little, 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 little blurbs. But yeah, we are, we have a million acres in the US. We are going to start placing hives on there. We've scouted, we actually reviewed 13 million acres and only found about 1.1 that were, you know, suitable for our needs to right. actually manage, put hives on. And then we scouted those in December-ish because snow came later this year. 
Um, and once the snow melt happens, we're going to start placing hives. It looks like April or May. And that is where we're going to start filming. Like, what are we actually doing on the ground? We will have hives on the ground to start researching the effect of managed bees and native pollinators, what those two do to an ecological diversity, what the ecological diversity has from a carbon sequestration, um, what that does to the And even with all your experience, Doug, how has it been raising money for past the honey? Rough. It's, we're not, we're not, it is, when you have data, it's sometimes harder to raise when you have a big dream and it's kind of pie in the sky. I also have no intentions of selling the company. So that, that precludes a large number of the investors in the space. Okay. I don't, if we're trying to, if we're trying to reclaim honey and eradicate fraud on a global scale, I can't do that in eight years. Right. But right. 50 year play, um, hopefully generational to my family or whoever else wants to step in and drive this thing. But that, that puts us in pretty different categories for investors. So we are, we're already swimming in a small pool. Well, Doug, what it says is a lot about your character and individual and who you are and what you're trying to do beyond just make money in the food business. Uh, you are you. You really care about what's happening globally. And, and I appreciate that. And if the listeners were to take away three, you said to margin and sell through, I heard that yeah. uh, margin and, you know, is it selling and consumption. Uh, if they were going to take away three points about your new book, what would those three key points be? And where would they go to learn more about uh, your advisory services? We know it's called uh, So You Want a Book, and I'm going to have a link to that. Wanna. Um, wanna. W-A-N-N-A. Um, <laughs> and, and we'll also have a link to Amazon to the book as well. Uh, any last words kind of wrapping up the interview? You want three pieces of takeaways? Yeah, three takeaways that, yeah, if, yeah. You, if you can. Food and, beverage is hard, food and beverage is harder than you'd imagine. So make sure you're committed. Um, know your end game and nail your margin and consumption. There you go. That's you go. great advice for all the listeners. Doug, a pleasure having you on. Thanks for spending the Thank time you. with us. For all of my listeners, all you got to do is look for this great orange cover. Okay. <laughs> So you want to start a food or beverage business. This is a great roadmap, great stories, and an opportunity for you to learn. Like you said, this isn't a normal book where you just pick it up and read chapter to chapter to chapter. You look at the decisions, you follow the path, and you'll see in the book that it says, hey, you got to make a decision, go to page 73, right? Um, so it's kind of set up that way to kind of guide you through that. And I think that was very... Uh, kind of magical how you did it because it just wasn't a story. It would actually help somebody kind of walk through a process. So I appreciated that. They, about They can retain, retain learnings. Well, that's, I can see that's what the intention of it is. Yeah. Yeah. But like most people, you know, they fall into that category. Well, I'm going to pick up a book. I'm going to read it from end to end, even though you warn them right up front, this isn't the way you should probably yeah. do this. Uh, good chances are you're going to get a lot of people that are going to do that. So uh, thank you for being on, though. I really appreciate thank it. for inviting me. I appreciate it and bringing me onto your platform. You're quite welcome. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.